Good morning. My name is Wes, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to be with you. Spend some time together in God's Word. Word to the wise, for those of you who are using the Kids Night In, write down this address. It's called opentable.com. My wife and I, in the past years when we've done this, have brought the kids and then spent uh, two hours just driving around arguing because we couldn't get in anywhere. So make a reservation. It's hard to get into restaurants. Don't be that guy. Um, now, could <laughs> we turn to a time in this service. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, any way to access the Scriptures, if you want to turn to Matthew 18, starting at verse 15, and when you found that, if you could stand together with me, I'll read this passage. We'll read through what Matthew writes here. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Matthew records Jesus as having said this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which, side note, that doesn't mean treat them badly. Uh, that means understand the true nature of your relationship. Jesus goes on, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, which was a big deal because in rabbinical thought at this time, three times was considered sufficient. After that, you were good. You didn't need to forgive anymore. So seven, good, right? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison that he should pay his debt and when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported this to their master, all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask you to illumine the preaching of your word. Break down every barrier, every hindrance that uh, would try to block the purposes for which you've sent it out. You've promised you will accomplish every purpose for which you send out your word. It doesn't return void. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. 
Well, on the morning of October 2nd, 2006, approximately 10.25 a.m., Charles Roberts entered the West Nickel Mines School, a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And by 11.07, that same morning, 10 girls between the ages of 6 and 13 had been shot, five of whom died of their injuries, along with the shooter himself who took his own life in the midst of that. Now, from names like uh, Columbine to Sandy Hook, uh, school shootings, particularly in the United States, are, are a tragedy that happens with far too great a regularity, almost to the point now where it feels like it's not even a matter of if something like that will happen again, but when. And yet there's something, there's a, there's a few things about the nickel mine shooting in particular that make it stand out. One being the specific targeted nature of girls in this shooting, what's often referred to as femicide, as all but the 10 female hostages who were lined up along the chalkboard at the front of the classroom and shot. All others were released. So that's something that stands out about this particular incident. The other thing being the response of the Amish community from which this found, these children had come. Sources, uh, the spokesman for the shooter's family indicated that within hours of the shooting, Amish community members found and reached out to the widow and her extended family, offering comfort, extending forgiveness. Uh, a charitable fund was set up by the Amish community for the widow and her three children. And almost half of the people present at the shooter's funeral were from this same Amish community. Some commentators were suspicious, even critical of the full complete forgiveness offered by this community in the face of such evil. Uh, one writer from the Boston Globe stating, I cannot see how the world is made a better place by assuring anyone who would do terrible things to others that he'll be readily forgiven afterwards, even if he shows no remorse. While others praised this community for the level of conviction with which they held to their Christian beliefs, noting that according to the Amish, willingness to forego vengeance does not undo the tragedy, or pardon the wrong, but rather constitutes a first step toward a future that is more hopeful. Now, my hope and prayer is that, by God's grace, none of us would ever have to even consider how to respond to horrific circumstances such as these, although the thought was not lost on me as a father of two daughters that if my girls had been attending this school, they would have been included in that same targeted group. And yet the questions of forgiveness that arise from this story. Like, what is it? What is forgiveness even? Uh, who should receive it? How is it given? Those are our questions that touch every single one of us, regardless of the size of the debt that's owed to you. They're questions that, that, that touch all of us. Nobody gets a pass from having to answer these questions, right? But they're questions that I believe our passage that we're looking at today from Matthew's Gospel actually help us to begin to answer, particularly if you're here today and you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, which, no, isn't to say, hey, well, there's nothing here for you if you're just exploring faith, if you are, um, you know, not connected with church in any way right now. No, there is. But if you just think about that last question alone, how is forgiveness given? Like, how do you actually 
do this, follow through and do this at the end of the day. It's a question that even for all our late modern technological, psychological advancements, uh, the fact that as a society generally we agree you should forgive people, it's a question that our world still seems hopelessly unable to adequately answer. But which I believe the Christian faith actually does answer for us, providing both motivation for forgiveness as well as resources to carry it out, freeing you freeing you from the chains of bitterness, the, the imprisoning pursuit of vengeance, and enabling you to begin to take some of those same steps towards a future that's more hopeful. That's what I want to explore with you this morning for just a few minutes together, which means at least two things. First of all, tackling a subject as large as forgiveness means this isn't going to be exhaustive. We're not doing a symposium on forgiveness. Uh, I won't be able to, nor am I trying to, deal with every nuance and aspect of what it means to forgive. Um, that's a longer conversation, which I'm glad to have with you. What it also means, though, I'm sure, is that one of at least two things is going to happen this morning as we talk about this together. One is either you will decide now to open up your heart and your mind to how the Spirit of God might be wanting to work in you, specifically this morning, things he might want to press on in your own life, places where you know you're harboring grudges, cherishing feelings of bitterness, vengeance, or unforgiveness. And, and you're going to do work in those places this morning. Um, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard work, actually. But you're going to experience greater freedom in your life today because of it, and so it's good. Or, or you're going to say and decide, I, I, I know what this passage says already. <laughs> I've heard messages about this passage. I, I, I know what you're going to say. All the while reminding yourself that I, I don't know your specific circumstances. Uh, uh, the Bible doesn't speak to your specific situation, and so, you know, it's good, but this, this doesn't really apply to you. You know what will happen if you decide to do that? Nothing. Nothing will happen. And you will walk out of here today as bitter, as angry, as imprisoned by what you feel is still owed you as you were when you walked in. But my prayer has been this week and is for you this morning, for every single one of us, that will decide to do the first thing today. It will open up our hearts and minds to how the Spirit of God might want to work in our hearts today. Because I can promise you, even if we just be willing to try, as I experienced myself this week, even as I was going through preparing this message, there is more than enough motivation, as well as infinite resources available to you in Jesus that can enable you to actually just put down, take off that, that luggage that you've been carrying around with you all these years. There are keys here that will open doors that you didn't think could open, allowing you to walk in more of the freedom today that Jesus desires every single one of us to walk in. Would you be open to at least exploring the possibility of that with me today? Choose the first thing. I pray you are, and, and if you are, I'd, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles, Bible app again if you've closed that to our passage, Matthew 18, and follow along with me. As we talk this morning about community and the necessity of forgiveness. Okay, so let's look at the first question 
raised as it relates to forgiveness. What is it? What is forgiveness? The simple answer at a very basic level, as you see from verse 27 of our passage, look at me there. Forgiveness is the releasing of an offending party from the debt that is owed to you. That's what it is. Look at 27. It says, he released him and forgave him his debt. That, very simply, at a basic level, is what forgiveness is. Let, let's just consider the details of Jesus' parable for a moment. We'll kind of unpack that definition a little bit. Here you have a king one day who comes to settle accounts, who calls in a man that owes him an astronomical amount of money, but for whatever reason, we're not, we're not told why, he's unable to repay the king. Now, a talent, that word you see in verse 24, that's a, a unit of monetary measurement in the New Testament um, that was equivalent to about 6,000 drachmas or 20 years wages for a day laborer. So owing 10,000 talents, we just calculate that at you know, $15 an hour, 2,000 hours a year, would mean that this servant owes the king somewhere around $6 billion. That's it. And if you read this passage before, I, I know I've often had the same question myself. Is like, why in the world would the king loan so much money to a servant? <laughs> like, I don't have anywhere near that much money, but if I had $6 billion, I'm not going to loan it to the kid who cuts my grass. Like, I'm probably not going to see that money again. So why would he loan him so much money? But the reality is that servant can simply mean someone under or answerable to the king, which would mean this servant is very likely a high-ranking official involved, as some scholars would suggest, in a process called tax farming. This is where you would bid to tax a certain region for the king, uh, in this case perhaps a wealthy region, guaranteeing the king certain returns but returns that this man clearly was unable to produce. And yet, as we see, although the king was just in condemning this man, his entire family, to indentured servitude for life, although clearly this is just a punishment only, because the sale of these things could never have covered the actual cost for what was owed, as a result of this man's plea for more time to repay the amount owed, the king has pity on him and releases him from the debt entirely. That is, he forgives the debt. But here's the really important thing to consider as it relates to this definition. Release from debt. Remember what we just said, the definition of forgiveness is release from debt is not the same thing as canceling it. That's the thing to, we need to remember. Release is not the same thing as canceling. Do you understand the difference? Okay, the king doesn't simply cancel what this man owed, this astronomical debt, just blotted out of the ledger, all good, $6 billion debt no longer exists. No, right? The debt still very much remains, regardless of whether or not this servant is the one required to pay any longer or not, which means in releasing this servant from his debt, what the king is actually doing is absorbing this man's debt himself, really at great risk to his own kingdom. Because think about that. Like last year, I think Canada's national debt was somewhere around $11 billion dollars. What would it mean? Imagine the financial potential devastation if our prime minister was to tell somebody who owed us $6 billion of that $11 billion, you know what? Don't worry about paying that. That's just gone. Like, that, that could ruin a country, right? So it's not canceling the debt. Forgiveness is releasing someone from the debt that they owe you by absorbing it yourself, which is exactly what this king does. 
for this man. He absorbs his debt. He, he takes on this man's debt. And when it comes to understanding what forgiveness is for you and for me today, that's what we have to understand ourselves as doing whenever we tell someone that we're forgiving them from whatever it is that's owed to us. It's not canceling the debt. As hopefully you can see from Jesus' parable here, a debt can't truly be canceled in the truest sense of the word. It has to be paid by someone. So either you require that debt to be paid by the person that owes you, or you pay it yourself. And paying it yourself, taking on the debt yourself, I'm saying, is what it means to forgive. And I know. Be patient. No, that, that doesn't yet tell you how you find motivation or resources to carry out that absorbing of debt. It doesn't. But hopefully what it does do at least is bring greater clarity as to what forgiveness actually is. And I think we need that, that clarity. Got a lot of people, I think the reason they find forgiveness so hard, they're so unwilling to do it, they find forgiveness ultimately unhelpful, doesn't work, is because they don't have that clarity. They don't know what they're saying when they do this. They have this idea in their mind of forgiveness as just canceling debt. That forgiveness just means dropping this subject, just forget about it like it never happened. Never speak about it again, often because that's the primary way they saw forgiveness modeled growing up. But then end up feeling discouraged, disillusioned down the road when they discover feelings of bitterness, unforgiveness, unforgiveness still present in their heart towards that person they thought they'd already forgiven. Why? Because a debt can't be canceled. Someone has to pay. And in order to truly forgive someone, they must be released from paying the debt, either by you absorbing the debt yourself or someone else paying it for them. But the debt is no longer pay, paid by them. They're released from paying the debt any longer. Okay, so that's what forgiveness is, which I have no doubt. Having learned that might leave many of you now thinking, okay, great, that's helpful clarity. Why in the world would anyone want to do that? It's completely unfair, unjust. Why should I pay the expense when they were the ones who caused the damage? Great question. And the answer, I believe, is found in exploring the next question about forgiveness that I want to look at together, which is, who should receive it? Who gets forgiveness? And how much? When is enough enough? Simple answer to this question who should receive forgiveness? Again, I think you clearly see from our passage today is everyone. Really? Everyone? Yes. Everyone should receive forgiveness. Everyone should receive a releasing from the debt that they owe you, particularly, again, if you're here and you're someone who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus. Why? Well, because what the parable Jesus tells Peter in response to what is ultimately the same question that he asks in verse 21 is clearly meant to illustrate is the relationship between the king of kings and all who he has forgiven. That is, his parable is depicting the relationship between you and me and Jesus. That's what the parable is ultimately illustrating. And then there's far too many passages <laughs> in the Bible that illustrate this very thing, both our incalculable debt as well as the reality that Jesus absorbed that debt in full on the cross. Some of the most obvious being passages like Romans 3, for there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, like a, a debt-absorbing, a debt-diverting sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 6, wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There too many to even go into. These are just a few. But here's the thing. Along with identifying us, as those same servants who've been released from an incalculable debt ourselves, the point Jesus' parable is, is also trying to communicate is that those who've received his offer of forgiveness, those who've received his absorbing of their debt by grace through faith, are then to extend that same offer of forgiveness to others. Simply stated, forgiven people are to forgive. Again, remember the details of Jesus' story. More than just more time to repay his debt. That, that's all the man asked for, right? Give me more time. Be patient with me. Although, I mean, six lifetimes wouldn't have been enough time to repay what he owed. He had just asked for more time, but the king had foregone punishment and released this man from his debt entirely. Again, absorbing this man's debt himself. And yet, as we saw, what then so enrages the king causes him to now follow through on the punishment he'd foregone a moment earlier is learning this servant who'd just been forgiven an incalculable debt himself was unwilling to extend forgiveness to his fellow servant for an infinitely smaller debt than the one he'd just been forgiven of. Which I know, I mean, even hearing that sounds off. It, it makes it sound like he was given forgiveness but with strings attached. But the thing to remember Something important that you see here is this man was forgiven his debt entirely before he'd forgiven or not forgiven anyone. Okay, so Jesus is not presenting a kind of works-based righteousness here. You just forgive enough people and then I'll forgive you. That, that's not what's being presented here. But in refusing to forgive his fellow servant of an infinitely smaller debt, what this wicked servant was revealing by his actions, forget what his words said, what his actions revealed were two things. First of all, he had not truly been transformed at a heart level by the grace of the king. That is, maybe he was relieved to be forgiven, but he was not renewed by the forgiveness. And what it also showed, secondly, was that what he truly wanted was a workspace salvation where people pay back what they owe in full. That's what his actions showed. That, that's what he wanted. So in hauling this servant back into his office, handing him over to the jailers until he should pay the debt in full, all the king was really doing was dealing with the debt owed to him in the same way this servant clearly demonstrated he wanted debts to be dealt with. I forget where he said it, and this is going to be a paraphrase of his words, but as Tim Keller once powerfully put it, for those who refuse Jesus' offer of salvation in this life, bowing the knee to him as their king and saying, thy will be done, they are choosing instead to pay their own debt before God at the last judgment, at which time God will in turn say to them, thy will be done. As Pierre Bernard once put it, fraternal love, that is love for our fellow man in which we extend the same offer of forgiveness that we ourselves have received, is not the condition of salvation, it is the required consequence of it. So returning to the question we posed earlier, why should I pay the expense for someone else when they were the ones who caused the damage? Because that's what Jesus did for you. Absorbing an infinitely greater debt than the one that he's now calling you to forgive. 
which, please, please hear me, is not for a moment to invalidate anyone's pain, to say uh, those debts, that abuse, those offenses committed against you don't matter. Don't quit hanging on to that stuff, that as followers of Jesus, we just need to take whatever's given to us with a smile. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. Some of you, I know, have experienced horrific traumas at the hands of others, and you need to know that Jesus aches with you over that loss, just as he did with the families of Nicomine's shooting. The reality is we live in a broken world where debts like these and countless others are incurred every single day. And yet what enabled that Amish community to forgive Charles Roberts the debt of their children had nothing to do with his deserving of their forgiveness. He didn't deserve it. Nor did his death in some way like cover the cost or pay the debt that was owed. No, what enabled them to forgive was the belief that the loss of Jesus' life was the payment for what they owed. A debt of infinitely greater value which they had no hope of repaying. And because they understood that forgiven people are to forgive. Isn't that what we pray? I think we don't often think about what we're praying when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Again, not as a condition of forgiveness, but as a grateful consequence or response to the forgiveness we've received. As Keller, again, puts it so perfectly, in choking this man who owed him money, throwing him into prison, you have a servant acting like a king or a judge. None of us will ever find the strength to forgive from the heart until our hearts are melted by seeing the king of the universe becoming a servant in order to pay what we owed him. Okay, so we've talked about what forgiveness is. The releasing of someone from a debt they owe you by absorbing it yourself. We've talked about who should receive it, everyone. The last thing I want to look at together with you is the question of how it is given. How is forgiveness given? Like, how do you actually do this at the end of the day? Because I don't know if this has been your experience as well, but whenever I have heard messages in the past about forgiveness, not always, but a lot of times, this is often where they end, right there, right? The pastor is like, so here's what forgiveness is. Here's why you should do it. Get out there and start forgiving. And, and, and that's usually enough to get you out to your car, or to the bus stop after the service before suddenly you're struck with the realization, I don't even know actually how to do this. Where do I even start? What are the steps involved in forgiving someone? And then more than that, I don't know if it's the same for you, perhaps you're just far more sanctified than I am, but in my own strength, I find forgiveness to be a deeply challenging thing to do. This is not my natural bent to absorb the debts that are owed to me. It's something, forgiveness is something incredible to receive, but that I find incredibly hard to give. And I'm often astounded by the wickedness of my own heart that will allow me to stand together with you on a Sunday morning, praise God with you for the, the fact that he's canceled my debt in full, and then walk out of here and immediately, metaphorically speaking, begin to choke my neighbor because of some debt that they owe me. Finding it entirely just that Jesus would absorb my debt in full and yet entirely unjust that I should be asked to absorb the debt of someone else that they owe me and seeing no 
inconsistency in that whatsoever. Anybody else? Is that, am I alone in this? Okay, good. I see at least one nodding head. Thank you. And then even in my better moments, when I, when I do, I'm like, okay, you're this. I need to forgive. This is what needs to happen. Like Paul in Romans 7, I find I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Whereas Jesus told his sleepy disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, my, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is too weak. So how do, you, how do we do this? How do we find strength at the end of the day to forgive from the heart as Jesus commands us there in verse 35? And more than that, how do we learn through forgiving one another to protect community over self-preservation? Because that's something else important about forgiveness you see throughout this passage. I don't know if you noticed, all of the forgiveness takes place within the context of community. If your brother sins against you, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Uh, uh, unwilling to forgive my fellow servant. It all takes place within the context of community. One of the things we see then about forgiveness is the way that forgiveness is presented in this passage as something that either preserves community when it's given or destroys community when it's withheld, which is something especially significant for us here as community. That's one of our core values as a church, with authentic community being one of the key markers demonstrating we're accomplishing that vision. So if we're ever going to walk in the fullness of all that Jesus desires for us and be this community that demonstrates the welcome of God, as our core value states, we're going to need to know more than just what forgiveness is and why we should do it. We're going to need to know how to actually forgive one another as well. What does this actually look like? As I said at the beginning, this isn't going to be exhaustive. Uh, and in fact, for some of you working through forgiving someone for some of the ways that you've been hurt, it's going to be a much longer much more involved process, actually, than what we can accomplish on a Sunday morning. It's going to involve a process that will involve, it will need community around you, as well as probably a trained counselor to walk through some of that with you. And we'd be glad to help connect you with a counselor uh, or, or some great counseling services after the service, if that's something that would be helpful to you. And yet, as we've seen here, for all of us, motivation for forgiveness, as well as the resources in Jesus to carry it out, that's something that remains the same for all of us. We all have access to that, so I believe we can at least begin taking those first steps towards a more hopeful future, even if the fullness of that freedom that's available isn't experienced by us necessarily today. So how was forgiveness given? Well, I think before anyone can truly forgive someone else from the heart, you need first to acknowledge both your own need for forgiveness as well as the reality that in Jesus, you were forgiven for a debt that you could never hope to repay. I think we need to start there. Our own experience of forgiveness needs to be first. And the reason is because that acknowledgement, what it does is it powerfully levels the playing field, which I know we don't like to do. We don't want to level the playing field. We want to sit there looking down in judgment, but it levels the playing field to acknowledge, I am also someone in need of forgiveness. My, I have also received forgiveness. Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian, says it this way, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So it doesn't absolve the other person of guilt to, to make that acknowledgement, but it does shatter the false reality that you yourself are not also a debtor in need of forgiveness. So that's the first step. 
Acknowledge my need for forgiveness myself. Second, acknowledge the reality that forgiveness is something that must be offered before it is felt. Which is simply to say, if you're waiting around to feel like forgiving before you forgive someone, you're never going to do it. Why? Well, first of all, because what countless studies have proven is that when you are hurt, when you are angry, when you experience trauma of some kind, your rational brain function hands over the steering wheel to your limbic brain, the, the emotional part of your brain, the fight or flight response. So in that state, when you are just flooded and being the, the emotions are driving the seat, you're never going to reason your way to forgiveness that you know you should offer someone. So you're, not, you're probably not going to have that experience of feeling like it. And second, because of, man, how good and how just unforgiveness feels. Doesn't it feel good? Exacting punishment, withholding forgiveness for debts that are owed to you, feels so good. It feels like you're carrying out justice when you do it. So why would we give that up? Think Frederick Buechner puts it so well when he writes this. Of the seven de de deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over a grievance long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them, in many ways as a feast fit for a king. Then he goes on to say the chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down at this feast is yourself. And so for those reasons alone, we need to decide to offer forgiveness before we feel like it, which in many ways is really just about abandoning the myth that I can't still feel hurt, broken, angry about something, maybe even need to protect myself from someone and still have forgiven them. You know those two things are not mutually exclusive. Right? That, that's a barrier to forgiveness that doesn't need to exist. You don't need to stop being hurt. You don't need to stop having to maybe protect yourself from someone in order to have forgiven them. Next, and this is what Miroslav Volf asks, actually he lists as his first step to forgiveness, name the wrongdoing and condemn it. Name the wrongdoing and condemn it, which is a super important but often missed step in the process of forgiveness, wherever you place it, again, usually as the result of maladaptive forgiveness practices that we learned growing up. And this is challenging because there can actually be a lot of fear involved in this step, both for the person forgiving, because, man, revisiting, naming these specific ways that you've been hurt, that's a very costly thing to do. And what if the person denies responsibility when you do bring it to them, causing even more hurt? So there's, there's fear on the side of the forgiver, also fear on the side of the one being forgiven for, as I'm sure you can imagine, having debts that you've caused, hurts that you've caused someone named by someone else can feel very shaming, shameful, exposing. We don't like it. And yet without this step in particular, I'm not sure forgiveness is actually possible. And it's what we see actually happening in our passage. What does Jesus say? Go to your brother, tell him his fault. When the servant comes before the king, he tells him, this is the debt that is owed. The problem for most of us is that those kind of broad, generalized, hey, do you know what, that, that difficult season we went through, um, that, that conversation the other night where I got a little bit upset, that, that, that kind of, those kinds of statements, that's the level of forgiveness most of us are used to. 
We're not familiar or accustomed to, most of us, with this level of specificity, which is probably the reason we continue to feel imprisoned and resentful towards people that we believe we've forgiven. Which, hear me, this is not to say that you bring in your itemized catalog of offenses, slam it down on the table and be like, all right, February 12th, let's start with the morning entries and uh, we'll get to the afternoon ones. Like, that. No, I'm not saying that either. But it could absolutely look like bringing a specific hurt or maybe a collection of related hurts. Maybe you're going to a parent or, or a boss or a teacher and saying something like, you had a pattern of speaking to me in a way growing up that made me feel small and like I didn't have anything of value to say. It could look like going to a friend or a spouse and saying, you deeply damaged the trust between us when you shared that private information, when you used violence or the threat of violence to intimidate me, when you pursued a romantic relationship outside of our marriage. Name the specific actions that incurred the debt and then followed by two simple phrases. First of all, that was wrong. That was not okay. And then secondly, I forgive you. We're naming the specific action, condemning the action, not the person. What you did, that action was wrong. And I forgive you. And if you've done that before, if you've ever been involved in this step in particular, there's tremendous power and freedom that results from going through this step of the forgiveness process in particular, both for the forgiver and for the one being forgiven. Because Think about it. Uh, it. Instead of just like shining a light on, on a, a closed door with a room full of offenses and saying, hey, I forgive you for all that, which leaves all kinds of unanswered questions still in the midst of that. Well, what about this thing, that thing? No. Instead, you are opening the door, shining the light into the room so that the whole room is filled with brightness and both parties have clarity about which debts exactly are forgiven. This thing that happened, you don't have to pay for it anymore. And then without question, you'll need the Spirit's help for every single one of these steps. But for the last one in particular, for having forgiven that person now for that specific debt, the last step is to seek the empowering of the Spirit daily, maybe even every five minutes as you begin, to leave that debt forgiven. To leave it forgiven to avoid the temptation to return to that feast of fools, which is actually just devouring yourself, to avoid the temptation by the Spirit's help to rejoice at the failures of that person who hurt you so deeply, to in inflict punishment or continue to return to exacting payment for a debt that you've released them from paying. That, that's a resource plainly found nowhere else but through a reconciled relationship with God through faith in Jesus and his debt-absorbing sacrifice on your behalf. Months after the tragedy that occurred in West Nickel Mines, investigation all complete, that one-room schoolhouse where the shooting had occurred was demolished. And a new one-room schoolhouse was erected in a different location, now simply called the New Hope School. Which for me is just a beautiful, powerful kind of living parable 
of both the power of forgiveness as well as what is possible when we truly forgive from the heart. As those old structures where hurt, where abuse, where trauma occurred are torn down by the power of the Spirit working in us and new houses of new hope are then able to be erected in their place. That's the freedom that forgiveness offers us. That's the freedom available to every single one of us through faith in Jesus, regardless of the size of the debt that's owed you. So maybe you would have noticed we didn't have our prayer time before this service. I've kind of reserved that time now for after the service because I think one of the worst things we could do is just run out of here being like, man, yeah, that's true, I should do that. Let's see if we can get into White Spot before it fills up. We, we, I think I want to at least give us the opportunity, if you want it, to just try and take some of those steps towards a more hopeful future right now together. So I'm going to leave the steps that I've just listed here. Again, these are just summary beginning. The process of forgiveness, there'll be some music playing. And I want to just invite you to do that first thing. Maybe you've been doing it already. Just to open up your heart and mind in the midst of this time right now to whatever the Spirit might want to bring to mind. Whoever, whatever, maybe that He's already been bringing to mind as I've been talking. That He wants to give you greater freedom from. Debts that you feel Him calling you to release others from having to pay. I want you to know that it's okay if that person who caused that debt isn't here right now with you, or even if that person's not alive anymore. Reconciliation, that requires two people to participate. Forgiveness just requires you and a willingness to release that person from having to pay that debt anymore. So I just want to go to prayer now. You, just right where you are in your seat, and do some of this hard but necessary work together by the power of the Spirit working within you. And then when we're done, then we'll come together and take the Lord's Supper, which will remind us again, we'll celebrate the debt-absorbing sacrifice and work that Jesus did on our behalf. Let's go to prayer now.